One of the things that my Bible college did that I really liked was that when we graduated and they gave us our diplomas, they also gave us these towels that said, be great, serve. And it, it was one last reminder, a symbolic act, that no matter what you do in the future, whether you're going to be a pastor, a missionary, a businessman, no matter what you're going to do, if you really want to be great, you need to become a servant. And this is what Jesus is trying to drive home to the disciples tonight in our text. If they want to be great in his kingdom, they need to learn to be the greatest servant. And we've seen all the way through our study through um, Mark chapter 8 that Jesus has done many miracles and signs and healings showing that he is the son of God. And us as the reader, we should be able to say along with Peter at this point in 829 that Jesus is the Christ. Now we have Jesus, he's starting to wind down his public ministry, he's starting his journey to the cross, and he's starting to shift his focus from the masses to the disciples specifically. And although the disciples apparently haven't accepted it yet, Jesus isn't going to be with them much longer. And they're going to have to be the ones to build up his church. But the problem is that the example that the disciples have had their whole lives has been the Pharisees. And these are men who have all been about self, self-exaltation, serving self. And it becomes evident in our passage that the disciples have a wrong view of what Jesus' kingdom will look like and what their roles in this kingdom will be. So Mark 9, 30 to 50, it shows us that Jesus is the Son of God by the humble service that his kingdom citizens are marked by. And we're going to look at four ways. Two of them will be positive and two of them will be negative in which kingdom citizens are marked by humble service. And as we go through this text, I want us all to understand that verse 35 is the hinge verse. Everything before it and everything after it, it's all going to point back to verse 35 in the lesson Jesus teaches here that if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So verses 30 to 32 here, Jesus once again, just like he did in chapter 8, he's telling his disciples that he's about to die on the cross. And in verse 32, it says that the disciples, they didn't understand and that they were afraid. But what were they not understanding and why did it make them fearful? I mean, it's, it's easy to think of reasons why they might be fearful. I mean, Jesus, their rabbi they've just spent years with, this, this man that they believe to be the Messiah, they love dearly, he just told them he's going to die. And this very well might include them as his followers. But what are they not understanding? The, the text is pretty clear. Jesus isn't speaking in a parable. He's not using a figure of speech. It's, it's pretty clear in the text. He's going to die, and he's going to rise three days later. And it's also the second time they've heard this. So what are they not understanding? Well, the text doesn't specifically tell us. I think the argument the disciples have in verse 33 gives a clue to what they might not be understanding. In verse 33, we see that they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. So what I believe they aren't understanding is, how can Jesus be the Messiah, the king from the line of David, who's supposed to come and subdue all the nations and set up his kingdom if he's dead? I mean, how can Jesus be the one spoken of in Psalm 2 or Isaiah 66, who's supposed to subdue the nations and make them his footstool if he dies? 
Even if he dies, the fact that he could be killed, that's a sign of weakness, right? Or maybe it's that they understand that Jesus has the power to raise the dead, as we just saw uh, when David preached last. But if Jesus dies, who's going to raise him from the dead? I don't think their theology was lining up, and it made them fearful. And the problem was that their theology was incomplete. In the Old Testament, there wasn't clarity to the fact that there was going to be two different advents of Christ. They didn't understand that Jesus was first going to come and meet their greatest need in dying on the cross, and that he was going to come again and set up his kingdom. They wanted the Isaiah 63 Messiah that would destroy the nations, rather than the Isaiah 53 Messiah that would be crushed for their sins. It, it's, as if, it's as if they had enough knowledge of, of, of this that they were afraid to learn more about, about what Jesus had to say about it. it. It's like they put their head in the sand. And then we get moving on to verses 33 to 35. We see here that when the disciples, they should have been focused on what Jesus said about dying on the cross and the implications for their own heart. They're consumed with pride or arguing over who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. But Jesus, much like a father who just received a phone call from his kid's teacher at school and he knows what happened, he asked the disciples, you know, what were you guys talking about over there? I, I can just imagine the silence here. But Jesus, in a very fatherly way, he sits them down, which is a sign of him assuming his role as a rabbinic teacher, his formal role, and he teaches them arguably the greatest lesson about living in the kingdom. And that is, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So be great, serve. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, he tells them that if they want to be great, they need to be a servant. This isn't just counter-cultural, it's counter-natural. The natural bend of our heart is in complete opposition to what Jesus is saying here. Every kingdom and king that's ever lived, they got to that position by subduing people and, and subduing nations. I mean, think about your, your personal world in the workplace. The guy at the top, he's not typically the guy who's been serving everybody. He, he scratched and clawed and fought to get his way to the top until he won that proverbial king of the hill battle. This is a bombshell that Jesus is dropping on them. And we'll see in a couple chapters in Mark 12, 28 to 34, that love of God and love of neighbor is at the heart of the law. So with, with saying that his kingdom is marked by humble service of others, Jesus is essentially saying that serving others is how we practically live out loving our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus is heading to the cross, and the disciples are his plan for starting and building up his church. And it is imperative that they learn this sacrificial humility that is fleshed out through serving others. And this brings us to the first way in which kingdom citizens are marked by humble service. And that's in verses 36 to 41. That kingdom citizens are marked by their servant love of the brethren. Kingdom citizens are marked by their servant love of the brethren. So as Jesus is teaching here, he grabs a kid, which is probably one of the disciples' kids, and he uses them as an illustration. He's using them as a metaphor, so he's not speaking 
of literal children in this passage, but of believers in general. He might possibly be speaking of believers who are new to the faith or maybe seemingly insignificant in human terms, but I find it more consistent that he is referring to believers in general. And one of the reasons is the exorcist is clearly connected to this imagery of this child that we're going to look at, and he was doing great things in faith, in faith that actually provoked the disciples to jealousy. And it's also more consistent with the Matthew account, speaking of all believers needing to come to Christ with a childlike faith. So as we walk through the rest of the text, when you see the word child or little ones referenced, just remember, it's not speaking of a literal child, but of believers in general. So in verse 37, it says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So Jesus being omniscient as he is, he knows what's about to be confessed to him in verse 38 uh, about how the disciples have mistreated and not received the exorcist. And the language in this verse is very similar to 1 John 2, 9 through 11, and it's, it's teaching a similar point. In 1 John, it's teaching that, the book as a whole is teaching that if you're a child of God, your behavior is going to show it. And if you're a child of Satan, your behavior will show that. So in verse 37, if you receive, or as 1 John says, love one of these children of God, it proves that you, in fact, are a child of God. And if you reject them or hate them, as 1 John says, it will show that you never really were one of his children. There's no place in Jesus' upside-down kingdom for not receiving or loving another, another believer in Christ. This doesn't mean we won't sin against them or we won't wrong another believer, but you won't be characterized by it. You will be marked by loving and receiving them, demonstrated through serving them. And when we receive them, we will be received by God the Father in return because it shows that we truly are his child. And then moving on to verses 38 to 40. So verse 38, we have John here. His conscience is pricked, and he confesses to Jesus, you know, we, we just did what you said, don't do, Jesus. There was, this, there was an exorcist who was clearly a disi another disciple of Jesus, and he was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and the disciples rebuked him. They told him to stop doing what he was doing. But what happened 20 verses earlier in Mark chapter 9 that David preached on? We see that the disciples couldn't cast out demons because they lacked faith. So now we can kind of see the motive behind what the disciples were doing. See, he wasn't one of the exclusive 12. And he was doing things that they weren't able to do. So they silenced him, much like the Pharisees would have. He was a threat to their position in the kingdom. And Jesus affirms to John that it was wrong what they did, and he admonishes them not to prevent him, saying that no one can perform a miracle in his name without being a follower of his. So basically, you're all on the same team. You're to be building up my upside-down kingdom. It's not about you. It's not about your many kingdoms. It's about me. And then we get to verse 41. Verse 41 seems to tie in nicely to verse 37 before John's interruption. And it says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. 
So verse 41 here, it, it serves as an excellent concrete example of what the disciples should have done with this exorcist. And we see in, in verse 41 here that any act of service or kindness, no matter how big or small, even something as little as a cup of water done to another believer in Jesus' name will be rewarded, namely by God's approval. So an implication we can draw from this is that when we are tempted to jealousy by another believer, a great way to extinguish that temptation is through a tangible act of serving them. It's really hard to hold a grudge or be bitter or jealous of somebody if you're actively serving them. Imagine what it would have done to the heart of the disciples and to the exorcist if they would have tangibly served him rather than tried to silence him. Just a simple act of service to take focus off of self and onto others and God would have been glorified and they would have received Jesus' approval rather than his rebuke. So the first way kingdom citizens are marked by humble service is by their servant love of the brethren. The second way is that they will not be marked by mistreating the brethren. They will not be marked by mistreating the brethren. So verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. This is a very graphic and horrifying warning that Jesus gives us here. And it's meant to instill the fear of God in us to motivate us not to harm a believer and to serve them instead. And this warning is specifically tied to the treatment of the exorcist by the disciples in verse 38. And this, is, this isn't just talking about what we would consider big transgressions. I mean, what the disciples did to the exorcist, we wouldn't necessarily call that a capital offense. But this speaks to the seriousness to how God takes it when one of his children are mistreated. Back then there were two kinds of millstones that they used. One of them was a hand millstone where they'd have a cup and they'd, they'd just grind small portions of spices or salt or whatever it is they needed. And then there were very large ones, ones that had to be pulled by a donkey. And these easily weighed over a thousand pounds. And I can't think of many more horrifying deaths than to have a thousand pound stone wrapped around my neck and to be hurled into the ocean to drown while my heart bursts from the pressure of the ocean depths as I fade into darkness. And something to consider as well is that the reality of a metaphor, an illustration, allegory, or any figure of speech is always more severe than the metaphor itself. Whether you're speaking of the glories of heaven or the horrors of hell, the reality is always more terrible or glorious. And Jesus is using the most graphic figure of speech that he can think of to give a small hint to the wrath of God that will be poured out on those who harm his children. And that should make us feel uncomfortable. And there's two implications to draw from this. The first is that we should be overcome with the fear of God to ever mistreat another believer. I mean, God is warning those who are claiming to be believers, right? I mean, Peter, he just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He's telling this to the disciples. 
This is one of those passages meant to make us feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, we know from other passages such as John 10, 27, and 29 that we, we can't lose our salvation. If you've truly repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus, his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, you can't lose your salvation. But sometimes God uses these warnings and fear as motivations to make us cling tighter to him. Motivations towards obedience. And so in this case, motivation to not mistreat your brother and to serve them instead. The second implication is, how great of a love does God have for me and for you and for all of his children that he would so jealously protect, defend, and even execute judgment towards those who wrong them? We should be overcome with that love. So moving on to verses 43 to 48, we see the third way showing how kingdom citizens are marked by humble service, and that's that they will not be marked by serving self. They will not be marked with serving self. Verses 43 to 48 here, Jesus employs parallelism in saying that we need to cut off our hand, our foot, our eye if they're causing us to sin. He's also using hyperbolic language or exaggeration saying that we need to take drastic measures to eliminate the sin in our lives. And if we're not willing to take those drastic measures, the consequence is eternity in hell. But it's easy to disconnect verses 43 to 48 from the context of this passage. So we need to remember that everything points back to verse 35. So in Mark, the specific context is that Jesus' kingdom citizens will be marked by humble service. He also just gave a warning not to mistreat another believer. So the point that Jesus is driving home is that whenever sin, whatever sin you are struggling with that is causing you to focus on self rather than serving your brother, you need to take drastic measures to perform spiritual amputation. Again, he's speaking in hyperbolic or exaggerated language, so he doesn't literally mean to cut off body, body parts here as some have taken that. The imagery of the hand, the eye, and the foot, they speak to the totality of man. The places we go, the things we do, the, the things we see. And your life would be drastically hindered if you couldn't feel, see, or move. And this speaks to the surpassing value of eternal life compared to our earthly life. And it would be more desirable to be in the worst possible, miserable human condition and to go to heaven than to indulge in sin and end up in hell. We must perform spiritual amputation on the sin in our lives because if we don't, we will focus on self and we won't be able to serve the body, which will cause us to mistreat the brethren. But don't miss the point here. The focus must be on serving others, not ourselves, even in our spiritual amputation. For example, if you eliminate internet access and alone time to combat a temptation for lust or purity, that is good and right. But if the focus is on self, you miss the point. If you are struggling with anxiety, anger, gossip, or any other sin, and you take measures to combat those sins out of a motive not grounded and rooted in service to God and the brethren, you've missed the point. We often can take measures of spiritual discipline to combat sin in our lives, 
with seemingly right motives, such as purity, for example, but it can subtly become legalism without even realizing it. You might feel better because you don't outwardly do whatever sin you were struggling with, but you, you quite possibly just transferred one form of self-service for another. And that might actually be why you can't seem to get over a particular sin that you struggle with in your life. Much like Colossians 3 says, we need to put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ. We need to put off or perform spiritual amputation on the sins we struggle with and put on service to others. You cannot serve the body if you're serving yourself. And if you're focused on serving self through your sin, you will undoubtedly mistreat another believer so as you're taking measures of spiritual discipline to combat the sins you struggle with evaluate how you can serve others greater and seek out those opportunities don't just wait for an opportunity to present itself you need to bug people you need to get on get on the edge of annoyance and even invite yourself over as pastor brett said this morning you know whether it's watching a couple's kids which i guarantee you won't annoy any parent or making a meal, having people over, praying through the church directory, meeting people for coffee, fixing someone's car, whatever it is, do a tangible act to take the focus off of self and onto others as we combat the sin in our lives. We, we need to remember that Jesus' kingdom is marked by love of neighbor demonstrated through serving, through service to them. And the result of not performing the spiritual amputation on the sins in our lives is an eternity separated from God and hell. And the idea of hell has been largely minimalized in our culture and even the church at large today. The reality is that the Bible, even Jesus himself, describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God, a prison a place of torment where the worm doesn't die. And again, these are graphic images just to give a hint to the realities of hell. The reality is that the sinner in hell would actually prefer a literal lake of fire to what hell really will be like. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He gives another graphic metaphor for hell to give us a hint of its reality. When he uses the word hell in this passage... It's the word Gehenna, and in the Hebrew, it's referring to a literal place, the Valley of Hinnom. And this place has its roots all the way back into the Old Testament. It was a common practice in the worship of Moloch for parents to sacrifice their firstborn child, throwing him into the fire at this location. We see that Israel was condemned for this practice in Jeremiah 7.31, but thankfully, King Josiah put an end to it in 2 Kings 23.10. And I, I love this about Josiah. To, to make a greater insult to injury and to desecrate this ritual site more, he turned it into a garbage dump. He took all of Israel's garbage, their, the animal carcasses, the sewages, uh, all to be burned in this location. So there was literally a never-ending supply for the fire to consume and for the worm to eat, which is what we have in verse 48 here. In verse 48, it's actually a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. And in the Isaiah context, it's referring to the countless dead bodies that the worm will be consuming 
with the men who rebel against God at the judgment when he comes back. And I find it really interesting how Jesus quotes this passage here in Mark. Jesus is essentially saying that he equates mistreatment of his children as the same as the men who will rebel against him. It is rebelling against God to mistreat one of his children because a true believer would not be known as one who mistreats another believer. This is the image given to us of the warning of hell here. And it should fill us with the fear of God, causing us to cling to Jesus as we perform this spiritual amputation. Much like verse 42 that we looked at. And if you aren't willing to make those sacrifices, it's evidence that you never really were his child. It's not saying that we won't struggle with sin, but we, won't, we will be marked by someone who repents of it. We wrestle with it. Sin will bother us in our lives. Then moving on to verses 49 to 50. Kingdom citizens will be marked by the totality of their humble service. By the totality of their humble service. Verses 49 to 50 here, they've been very difficult to interpret throughout church history. And the main reason for this is because there's no parallel passage in all of scripture. There's no other verse that has fire and salt together in the entire Bible. And the key to understanding this, these two verses is to look at it in light of the temple sacrifices, specifically that of Leviticus 2.13. And we actually have one manuscript where a scribe wrote in the margins the reference to Leviticus 2.13. So Leviticus 2.13, it says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. So that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking with your grain offering. With all of your offerings you shall offer salt. So if there is ever a passage in scripture that shows that God loves barbecue, it would be this passage here. We see the mention of salt and we see an indirect mention of fire through the sacrifices being offered. We're told that all grain offerings are required to have salt and then he speaks generally of all offerings saying that all offerings need salt on them. And this salt was added as a preservative, symbolically saying that God's covenant, God's covenant is enduring to his people. So back in Mark, in verse 49, when it says everyone will be salted with fire, keeping in mind verse 35 as everything points back to it, what Mark is saying is that we need to be seasoning ourselves with the salt of humble service to others as we are offering ourselves continually as living sacrifices to God, as Romans 12.1 says. Much like how you need good seasoning to make good barbecue, we must take the focus off of self and salt ourselves with service to others in everything that we do as we are being these living sacrifices. So verse 50, it says, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt was extremely valuable in the ancient world. And there was a popular saying back then that the world cannot survive without salt. They used salt for everything. And the salt that we have today, the salt on your kitchen table, you can't lose your salt it can't lose its saltiness. It's so refined. But what they had was rock salt primarily, and that could lose its saltiness. So it was important for them to do whatever it took to protect the integrity of the salt that they had because 
if they didn't, the consequences could be severe with their food spoiling. So the symbolism of the salt in the context of Mark here is speaking to the importance of us protecting our saltiness of sacrificial, humble service to others. Our service is the tangible way we love our neighbor, and if we take the focus off of serving others and become self-absorbed, we will lose our saltiness. We must be salty Christians, and then it will create unity within the body as we are serving one another. So in our passage, we see four ways how kingdom citizens are marked by humble service. They are marked by their servant love. They are marked by not mistreating the brethren. They will not be marked by self-service. And they will be marked by the totality of their service. To sum it up, be great. Serve. There are many examples in our church of how I've seen my family loved through this sacrificial, humble service. And I'd like to close with sharing a very personal example that our family have experienced. And I'm not going to share their names because I know they'd hate that. But there's a family that's lived across the street from us for nearly nine years, well before we started coming to this church. Over that period, virtually every time my family's been sick, there has been a rotisserie chicken, salad, homemade rolls at our doorstep. They've run to the store countless times to pick things up for my wife. There's been countless cinnamon rolls, cakes, pies, you name it, dropped off at our doorstep. There was a cake this last week dropped off. They've even mowed my yard when they noticed I was working a lot. They've been there through good and bad times with godly wisdom and a shoulder to cry on. And when you're actively breaking HOA rules out of ignorance by cutting down a tree, they came over and helped me dispose of the evidence. But the most incredible thing I've seen this family doing is I see them doing it with other families in our church. They're very salty disciples. And I I don't share this to puff them up or even possibly embarrass them, but I think it serves our church well to highlight a very practical example of what it looks like to live out what we've been talking about today. This is a great time to evaluate our hearts. How salty are you? Are you actively seeking out ways to serve the body? What are some things that you can do this next week to tangibly take the focus off of yourself and to serve somebody else? And I'm, I'm going to leave, leave us with the question that convicted my heart, and that is, do you think that somebody would think of you as an example of this sacrificial, humble service we've talked about today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Mark and the study we've had showing that uh, your son Jesus truly is the son of God. We thank you for our passage today. I pray that you will help us to live this out, to be becoming less of us and more of others, to be desiring to serve the body uh, as as we combat the sin in our lives, that we will do it even with the motive to serve others and to serve you. And I pray that we will be marked as people who 
our humble servants of one another. And God, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Please stand with me as we close our time in song.